Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a Daily Planet Productions podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward while those return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman and I'm joined by the world's most popular normie, Scott Daly. That's me. Everyone um, voted for me in this week's question, right? Like that, it was just everyone. So we don't really have much to talk about because it was just, it was just me. I mean, we were leading them to that answer, so I assume that's what yeah. they said. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is the weekly podcast where you and I eagerly dive into Wild Bill's world of spinning tops, child-killing unicorns, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week, we kick off Arc Eight Beacon with chapters eight dot one. 8.2 and 8.3. And uh, we're a little late this week, Matt. It's a Thursday night. And we're sitting here recording, which is not our normal recording night. But because we're a little late, we decided to include Tuesday's chapter in our episode this week. So we got three to do. And uh, this was uh, I think you described it as a bunch of table setting chapters, right? Yeah, I, I see. I see this as I mean, I, th- I think we discussed in the previous arc that we were um, perhaps culminating certain things. And and as we begin this arc, there's a lot of uh, touching base with various characters, communicating things, preparing, you know, the ideas of of sort of sort of imagery and, and symbolism of, of instability and, and just foreboding in general, as if we are building towards something, but we're not sure what it's going to be. And we haven't got there yet. Yeah. And, and you mentioned to me, um, we were, we were kind of, after we finished reading all these chapters earlier in the week, we were talking about this idea of web serials and how web serials kind of maybe more than any other kind of literature need to have these chapters where you kind of reset the table and re remind everyone of the situations and do this thing where like, okay, we're, we're having to set all this up again because you're reading these two chapters a week um, it's a it's a much slower reading process than just opening a book, right? Yeah, we've we've been pointing this out in in you know various ways throughout our whole time here on this show. How how you know back in Worm, every the start of every arc would be you know the table setting, if you will, for that arc, and and then there were sort of larger movements within the story that may have spanned several arcs, and in those cases, they generally require more table setting. So. Uh, if anything, the fact that we have three chapters of uh, positioning and communicating um, uh, and, and no real conflict yet sort of indicates that we might be entering into a uh, long sort of multiple arc chain of, of stories. That's just a guess. That's just kind of a, a pattern that I'm picking up on. But um, that's what it kind of seems like to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, that, that, that's the feeling I get to, especially when you take three chapters to do a lot of the setup and, um, bringing up of conflicts. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. uh, that, I mean, it, I didn't want it to sound like we, I didn't like these chapters. I absolutely did. I think there's a lot to talk about here, but yeah, it's doing, they're, they're chapters that are doing a lot of legwork and sometimes you just need those chapters to just do a lot of work to set up stuff that's going to come later. Yeah. There's certainly a lot going on. It's just, um, not much in the way of, of the kind of conflict that we we're kind of trained to expect. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. All right. Uh, so announcements this week. Uh, the, so, so Scott, do you want to, um, uh, make the first announcement? 
Yeah. So um, after a week of us having an episode that's two week late, two two days late, rather, um, we're having another weird week. July is like for my wife and I, July is our vacation week. And last year we went on our honeymoon and we were able to pre-record episodes because we were reading a book that was already released. But that's not the case now. We're reading a book as it comes out. So Matt and I cannot pre-record next week's episode. I will be in Colorado next week and uh, I, I will actually be visiting Matt on our normal recording time. I'll be staying at his place while we're driving around Colorado. But there's really just no time on my vacation to sit down for like six to eight hours and really jump into these chapters. And and plus, because we're covering one chapter this week that we normally wouldn't, next week's episode will only be a single chapter episode, which I don't think that would work very well. Yeah. So what we've kind of decided to do instead of um, just skipping a week is we haven't done like a worm slash ward mailbag episode in a while. We haven't just taken your questions and, and talked about them. We've been giving you guys questions for every week, but we haven't been answering questions from you. So we're going to take next week as an opportunity to do another mailbag thing. Um, and then the week after this, we'll pick up on all the chapters that have been released since then. So it'll be Saturday's chapter as well as the Tuesday and Saturday chapter for next week. Yeah. So it'll be another three. Yeah. Assuming there are no surprise interludes, which, uh, sure. Which there always, could be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, we'll cover those, those two if they come up in, in that time frame. but so that, that's the plan. Um, so yeah, guys, start asking your your mailbag questions. We'll do this like just like we did for Worm. Um, if you want to ask a question in the the Reddit thread for the episode, you can feel free to do it there. Please put like uh, a hashtag mailbag somewhere in your question. So when I'm searching for questions to pull them, it's easy to do that. If you want to email them to us, you can do that, too. It's uh, what is the email again? Gotwormpod at gmail.com. Um, that's gotwormpod at gmail.com. Just put mailbag in there. And we'll take any questions. Like if you want to ask us stuff about Worm again, uh, even though we're not covering that right now, do it. If you want if a question specific to Ward, ask them. Um, that we're not going to do questions about other things. Like we did that in the past on mailbags, but we have a, a patron Q&A we do that kind of stuff for now. So this is just a, a Worm, Ward, parahumans focused mailbag so yeah uh i look forward to doing that i always liked those episodes it was always fun seeing what you guys came up with so i think that'll be fun because matt and i will be in the same room while we're doing it which is something we're not really used to yeah this will be the first uh worm podcast that we've uh that we've done that for so yeah absolutely cool uh, all right next announcement i the next uh the fourth quarterly fan art contest begins now and the theme for this round is family. The contest will run from now until Friday, August 17th at midnight. Uh, the official rules post will be up on dailyplanetfilms.com and should be linked in the description of this very post. Uh, and we're changing the way prizes work this time around. Yeah, so, so I think the the long story short of this is our, our original plan was oh, we'll get a print of the this artwork and we'll get it signed by Wildbow and then we'll send it to the person. Um, Matt, you and I did not take into account how much it costs to ship posters, especially yes. internationally. Especially inter or, or ship anything internationally. Yeah. I, yeah. I tried so many ways to solve this problem and uh, it, it turned out. It's to, hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Like, yeah. It, it, like especially like to ship to Canada to get Wildbow signature and then ship from there to another country. It, it's just 
it's so, so, so much money. Right. And so instead we've like decided to, we're just going to up the cash prize that we do on this. So we're going to give a little more cash and, and we'll go into the details of all that the actual official rules post for this, which will be up. Um, if you're listening to us record live right now, no, it is not up yet. But if you're listening to us um, on a podcast form, it's up. It's so you can go look at our official rules and everything. Um, so sorry about that. I, I, I don't understand why the posters are so expensive. Like, I, I really don't get it. And I don't get like U.S. to Canada. Like I, I get to Australia. Like I get why it costs $500 to ship something to Australia. I get that because it's very far away. I don't get why U.S. to Canada is like 300 and something dollars. I don't I don't I don't get that at all. Yeah. Yeah. This was one of those situations where I was like, well, surely I've misunderstood something or yeah. input something wrong or asked the wrong question. But no, no, that seems to be the case. Yeah, I, I was I we were completely unprepared for that reality. And, <laughs> and now I understand why so many contests you see around the Internet say, sorry, U.S. residents only um, because, yeah, international shipping is just like a, a pyramid yeah. scheme or something. Yeah, something. Yeah. So we will make it up to you in other ways, though. Um, we're upping the prize pool money. And I think I, I've been thinking about like maybe doing like a, a runner up prize as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. it's not just one person winning each time. I think that's something yeah. fun we could do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I think the the theme is pretty cool. We actually I, I went into our patron discord and asked people what good themes were. And family was one that I really liked that some people I'm sorry to the person, the one person who came up with it. Uh, I didn't actually check who it was, but I think it's really good because it's it's broad enough, but really fits with the the theme of this entire story. So, yeah, there's a lot of potential. You, your your mind gets going immediately. And I think we'll probably find that person and credit them somewhere relevant. Yeah, yeah, I, I will try to do that. <laughs> Um, but thank you. Thank you everyone for coming up for tossing out all those themes. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, so Wildbo was saying it was, it was murder, death, hug. So let's give him credit right, right right now. Hooray for murder, death, hug. Yes. Thank you. So good. So much. So that's the fan art contest. Yeah. I love these. I love them so much. Yeah. So much fun. Yeah. I'm I'm really looking forward to the entries this time. Yeah. All right. So, uh, next uh, item community spotlight where we read what people wrote from last week's thread and the discussion question last time was uh, what's your f- favorite or most interesting mundane character um so uh, basically everyone had great answers i mean it, it's funny to me how i i kind of forgot how many great mundane characters there were in this in, in these stories yeah um so from stellhex they choose yamada and they say memes aside, just reading her interlude again, um, and and stuff like, I, why aren't you scared of me? Because I have no reason to be. Jessica lied, meeting the girl's eyes. Um, it just makes you realize what a badass she is. And yeah, she is. She is a badass. Yeah, yeah. Um, Kausubalu said uh, Pigo and said she's a flawed and honestly pretty nasty person, but also competent and capable at what in another world another work might be the prototypical supporting good guy job for all her prejudice against Cape. She's not even a terrible boss. We know anecdotally that she would confide with at least some of the capes under her. And when she did something immoral in the interest of the greater good, she took full responsibility for it. That's a very good point. I mean, I, I, I do completely agree that Pigot is kind of a nasty, bad person, but as a character, she's certainly interesting. And that's, you know, I think, I think sometimes we forget that like sometimes when we don't like the people that we make it so like the character's bad 
And, and that's something that I, I constantly see in, in criticism a lot. It's like, I don't like what this person did and therefore they're a bad character. It's like, well, no, like fiction is the safe space where we can like shine a spotlight on terrible human beings and say we like how their character is designed and don't have to worry about like, like passively. Yeah. Passively endorsing terrible behavior. So yeah. I think it's cool that you can have characters like this. Yeah. And I mean, she's a great person to kind of empathize with because she was this like badass combat PRT soldier who was badly injured and became disabled and became extremely resentful about it and took a, took on a leadership role, but only after this resentment toward capes had sunk in. So it's a great, you know, it's kind of a great tragic arc actually. Yeah, I agree. Next, uh, pizza hot dog lover and the venom Rex have selected Glenn. Uh, venom Rex says, uh, the poor sod that had to teach Taylor of all people how to manage image without fear. <laughs> um, and, and they say they just like all of their interactions together and that he's a really swell guy with the knowledge, uh, the, the knowledge to deal with parahumans effectively. Um, and um, he, he, he basically instills the need to maintain appearances in, um, in, in, in the capes minds and not just like, doesn't like force them to do it. And then pizza hot dog lover says he's a smart guy who has a tough job. Uh, that he was good at, and it's always fun to read about competent people. That's true, I agree. Uh, number two, he was a muggle who successfully worked with capes, uh, which is pretty rare because capes are so difficult to to manage. Yep. Um, and he kind of got them to not dismiss him immediately due to how how capable he was. And finally, he was someone who initially disliked, uh, who 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 I, meaning pizza hot dog lover, in, initially disliked mostly due to Taylor, Taylor's characterization but grew to appreciate after he called Taylor out on some of her bullshit. I think that's great. Like Glenn is one of the first times in the story, actually, where someone puts a mirror in Taylor's face, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And it works. Like she actually like listens to some of it, uh, which is another, another kind of rare thing. Yeah. All right. uh, I'm going to mess up this name. Survival. Let's go with that. C V I V L uh, said Charlotte and Forrest. Uh, they say Charlotte kind of got swept into Taylor's story and she was able to keep up with the Queen of Escalation. That's very true. And she kept that whole gaggle of orphans under her control and cared for even after Brockton Bay got got bodied. Man, there's a lot of great verbs here. I love yeah. I love calling things bodied because <laughs> it's a great movie I saw. You should see it's about rap battling. It's great. Um, and they also mentioned that Forrest was. Uh, of course, the guy who who stood up before anyone else to help her fight mannequin ended up being key in that mannequin f- fight. The first normie out of her territory to do so. And even after that, he stayed with her and, and stayed with Charlotte and helped with the kids. They were good folks, survival says, and they hope that they're doing OK somewhere in the megalopolis. Me, too. I do, too. Yeah. Or maybe some nice corner world settlement. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the megalopolis is maybe not the best place to be right now. So, yeah, maybe they're somewhere far, far away. Yeah. Uh, EXE JPEG WMV uh, selects Natalie by a country mile, they say. Her relationship and general personality when interacting with the team feels like a parallel for the current public relationship with parahumans. Yeah, so it's almost like she's a, a stand-in for what for what the kind of the, the public perception is. Yeah, I think that's very true, and I think we'll see some of that in this week's episode as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sunichi says Dr. Mother is their favorite normie, uh, not for any agreement with her character, but actually for the exact opposite. She almost exactly embodies the ultimate extreme of Taylor's doing the wrong things for the right meat reasons mentality. Someone who started out doing unambiguously good thing, killing Eden. And I like that he 
puts Fuckster in here too, because that's mm-hmm. that's Eden's official name, guys. That's what right. it is. Um, before she could form, but quickly slid down all the way the slippery slope right after, literally making an empire out of a mountain of human misery, suffering, and death. And I like this a lot. Like I like the idea that like we were talking about. Like I don't agree with this character. I don't like this character, but I find them a fascinating construct and that's i think that's what it's all about oh sure i mean dr mother has spawned so many conversations yeah i think that's the important thing yeah um the thing that i was most fascinated and most i guess pleased by this question is very few people gave the same answers um we had Mm -hmm. a lot of people we didn't even pull all of them but everyone like i in the back of my mind i was like everyone's just gonna say yamada and then that's just gonna be boring we're just gonna have to talk about <laughs> that yamada the whole time but everyone gave him a different person and and had different reasonings for them and i think that's really great because you know we talk about how much the story's focused on capes and focused on this world and how much the capes kind of ignore everyone else and are just focused on on the cape problems and the cape world but yeah we do have these very well drawn fascinating normal characters that exist in this world and i think it's great that that so many people were able to spotlight so many of them. Yeah, I, I like I, I like the discussion of Glenn also because he's one of the few characters like all of the capes have some kind of life shattering trauma in their past. And most of the normies actually also have a lot of trauma in their lives just because it's such a hellish world. But Glenn, like we don't he may have, you know, something bad may have happened to him in his life. But if, if it did, we don't know about it and he doesn't dwell on it. And that actually makes him one of the more unique characters in the parahumans world, you know? Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. Yeah. All right. So um, in terms of general discussion that was interesting, uh, we got a lot more Gary-related pushback than I think we were expecting to get. Several people felt that we were being too harsh on him. And I think we, Scott and I, agree that people have good points, um, but... I don't I don't think that any solution that doesn't involve efforts on both the human and the cape side for peaceful cohabitation um, are are, are going to work. Yeah, I mean, that's like like I several people said and it got upvoted a bunch of times that they said you're being unfair to Gary. And I was like, well, am, am I I really went, went back and looked at this and re-listened to what I said and reread the chapter and was like, are, were, were, were we being too harsh on him? And I mean, I guess. I guess the if, if you look at it as binary, if you say Gary's wrong and, and then say, therefore, the way the capes are handling things is right, then I, I can get this idea of we're, we're being too harsh on him. But I, I think where I'm at is both sides are fucking up big time. Both sides are doing wrong things. The capes need to communicate with the human beings that live on this planet way more than they do. They have not been communicating with these people. They have not been sharing information with these people. They've kind of been just ruling them as if they just get to because they have powers. And I don't think that's the way to go. But I also don't think painting every single one of these these parahumans as uh, objectively evil and we we must hate them and mistrust them is going to solve anything either because they're not going away, Matt. Like, I, unless unless the the end of this book is like solving a way to get the shards out of the people's heads, which I I kind of doubt. It, it's that we're gonna have to deal with them. They're gonna have to learn to live together. So, um, yeah. I mean, yeah. I I think Gary's a bigot with good points, but I think he's he's that his bigotry is is hurting his ability to make rational decisions. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like this character is being set up to 
be responsible for either directly or just by being a patsy uh some horrible events um uh, and we don't know what those are going to be yet but if you just kind of look at the flow of, of the story it it seems very likely that nobody is going to be singing gary's praises at the end of the story and I, so i don't feel <laughs> particularly inclined to be That's in his true. corner right now yeah i don't think i don't think we're going to look back at at arc 27 or whatever it is and be like man that gary he sure yeah. knew that the right thing to do was to paint Kenzie as a terrible person. Yeah, yeah. yeah. To use her as part of his bigotry-based yeah. political platform. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, so yeah, that's a lot of a lot of preamble, but it was necessary this week. And now we're getting into Beacon, part uh, chapter eight dot one. And this arc begins with Victoria waking up to a gloomy, windy, dark city. And she thinks the world kept spinning like a stubborn top. Uh, as she as she flies around, uh, she doesn't observe any crime, even with the blackout the city's undergoing, suggesting that people are too scared uh, to even uh, burglarize and that they're basically hiding. Yeah, this the chapter and therefore the arc opens with a lot of this foreboding imagery, like you said at the the top of the episode. There's the blackouts, temperatures are dropping. We get we get this this recurring motif of this incessant wind from the portals, like the wind has just become like a constant now almost. And mm-hmm. and I love this description of this encroaching frost that it is every day taking a little bit longer to melt. How the sun is is penetrating the clouds, but it takes until eleven o'clock. In the, in the morning before the, the frost turns back to this damp, vibrant green, there's this real feeling that uh, winter is coming. Like, I know <laughs> it's we can't say that phrase anymore. It's like the Game of Thrones ruined it. But like winter is coming. And this is to get us into this mood. With winter yeah. comes this whole host of problems for everyone on the planet. Like the, the darkness is encroaching. Things are bad are happening. And our characters are going to be pushed like they've never been before. Like narrative tells us that for characters to grow and change and move past their conflict, they have to be put in direct confrontation with bad things with, with that conflict. And there has to be uh, choices made and, and things happening. So we know this is happening. Like it, it's going to happen. And, and the start of this arc is, is putting us in that mood. They're just like, we know it's coming. We can feel it like the, the everything. And I think we see th- that in this imagery, we see it in the, the, the cold, the clothes that people are wearing. I, I just think it's so fantastically well set up like that. You just get you just get in that mindset immediately. Yeah, there's also a, a beat here that I want to pick out because I think it runs through this and it, and it relates to what we've been talking about that she mentions like she's flying around. She sees some people who look like they're like scoping out a building. They're not robbing it, but they look like they might be checking it out to see if it's vulnerable. Yeah. And she, she says that she, she basically just lands near them and that's enough to send them running. Yeah. And she's like, you know, in her mind, it's like, Oh good. I scared away the burglars. But like, I, I was thinking, what if they were just, what if they weren't even burglars? And that's just how on edge people are that like, if a Cape lands near them, they just run. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I mean, the, the, it could be that or it could be this idea that they were scoping out a building like the, the crime hasn't happened yet. The the big thing hasn't happened yet, but it's being scoped out. It's coming. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. Like that, that's that's the, the big feeling of the start of this chapter. It is 
coming. And I think this is a perfect time for us to discuss the arc title and kind of make our guesses about what it means. Because if we take this, we take a beacon and we continue our light source metaphor. A beacon is just just a light, you know, set up on a high position and you can put on a tower or a hill or something. Um, And I personally have a tendency to hear the word beacon and I immediately go to the positive. It's a symbol of light in the darkness. It's a signal of of defiance. It can be a beacon of celebration, but it can just as easily be a warning, a sign of future conflict. And judging by how this arc opens, kind of leaning towards the latter yeah yeah i i i think you may be right i think there's a case there's a specific element in in these chapters that i was thinking like when it came up i was like oh that's the beacon i'll mention it when we get there um and 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 it is a positive beacon but i you know we know that these chapter titles never or these arc titles never mean only one thing right so in fact um, in fact they most often mean all the things simultaneously right (laughs) right Right. So, yeah, well, I'll talk about that when we get there. Though. Yeah, sounds great. I, I like that you pulled that stubborn top line, though, that this description of the earth spinning as a stubborn top, this idea that you can't stop it. All you can do is like there's no there's no stopping it. All you can do is prepare for it. That's kind of where our characters are right now. And also, this is great setup for a time later in these chapters where tops are mentioned because it's not the last time we're going to talk about tops tonight. Yeah, yeah. We'll get there too. So um, Victoria flies to this meeting that's been called. It's a giant gathering of hero capes and all our friends are here. There's the Shepherds, Azure, Advanced Guard, Foresight, uh, Tempera and Fumehood are there. Even even Natalie and her friend are there. Yay. Um, <laughs> and and we'll meet even more people before, uh, before this ends. Yeah. And, and to connect to our opening foreboding mood, We have this line here where Victoria notes that with the weather being what it was, the water being close enough that the wind could blow over it and chill everyone present and the lightweight of costumes in general, a lot of people looked like they were struggling to stay warm. And so this chapter thus far has been steeped in this imagery of the coming cold, the winter is coming and and the bad and stuff with it. And Victoria in the opening of the chapter actually thinks about how she's going to have to revisit her costume because her costume is just not it's, it's not insulated enough to stay warm during all this stuff. And we see here that this extends out to every single one of the heroes. The heroes are not prepared for the coming cold. And I think that metaphor works for the lack of preparedness for what's about to happen, that that we're not ready for the the, the bad we're about to break. And that's yeah, uh, uh, I like that. I yeah. like that. Yeah. I mean, it gives you this very striking image of all these, you know, really powerful, badass people who are kind of kind of huddled together yeah. maybe and maybe rubbing their arms basically basically looking weak you know yeah yeah you're you're right the, the most powerful human beings on the planet are huddling in the cold they're they're all mm-hmm. meeting up in one place this is probably the, the the biggest congregation of power on Gimel right now and they're shivering in the cold huddling mm-hmm. up against each other and and how powerfully worrying of an image that is it's it's really great yeah, yeah. And the, the the interesting wrinkle in this whole thing to me and 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 this could just be typical Scott reading too much into things, but the text indicates that there are a few non-capes around. You've already mentioned Natalie and her friend, but we also get to see how they're dressed. We see that Natalie's friend wore flannel and Natalie wore an overly puffy coat that I was guessing would do a lot to keep her warm in this chilly weather. So, we have this group of super powerful capes, cold, huddling, trying to stay warm and then we have the only non-powered people in the place dressed appropriately and seemingly staying warm and there's there's powerful imagery there too 
Yeah, yeah. I, I that's very evocative thematically. I agree. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So Victoria then meets up with her team, and Luxy demonstrates a very deep knowledge of uh, put down repartee. She explains that this is a product of having been in the wards training camps where everybody rags on each other constantly. Um, preteen capes, man. We got to love them. Yeah. Young children with post-traumatic stress disorder getting really good at insulting each other. Great. Yeah. Great. The part about this that really jumped out to me, though, and what I want to talk to you about is how much like the, the some members of the group have this really big reaction to the the kind of goofy silly stuff that's happening in this group like like how much they're worried about their perception amongst the other heroes here like chris uh tristan even victoria little um there's this there's this idea that the other teams are going to judge breakthrough for high-fiving instead of fist bumping for for telling lame comebacks and and goofing off um this idea that this is detrimental to their image and i think it's it's no telling that we in this passage we have Kenzie talk about how 70% of the kids in Ward's training camp are all about establishing a pecking order. Um, I think this is kind of reaction shows that that's not limited to just preteen capes. That's something that all capes do. Yeah, I think these guys, especially the older ones, have a bit of imposter syndrome and a feeling yeah. like, you know, because this is kind of, this is not really their debut debut, but this is kind of their debut the first time they've they've put themselves forward together in the context of a gathering of heroes as we are breakthrough. We are a hero team, right? These are our Cape names. You know, they only picked their Cape names and their team names so recently. So yeah, they're, they're a little bit, um, they're eager to not come off as fools in their first, you know, their first debut basically. Yeah. And uh, you, you're right though, that I think it's a bit, uh, they're being a bit over, uh, overly cautious because they're just nervous about it. It seems to me. Yeah. And, and I think this is what we're doing here is kind of setting up Victoria's mindset for uh, the moment at the end of the second chapter where she comes up with this uh, like new cooperation plan, because this is like in worm, we saw a meeting amongst villains and in a meeting amongst villains, it was all about perception. It was all about strength. It was appearing like you are the strongest person there because that's the only way people will listen to you. These are the good guys. These are the, the supposed heroes. They're supposed to be like working together and, and the team of, of that are going to help save the world. And we're worried about the perception of a high five over a, a fist bump. Uh, I, like what we need here is some cape to come in and, and propose like that heroes need to stop competing with each other and work together. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's an interesting contrast yeah. that this happens just before that suggestion is made. Yep, yep. So yeah, Victoria thinks about uh, the combative energy that she's sensing from Kenzie and realizes that she can't really distinguish where it's coming from or whether it's a good or a bad thing. Like, does it does it indicate that Kenzie is, um, you know, in a lighthearted mood and, and feels like <laughs> like messing with people because she's because she's in a funny mood or is she? angry and being aggressive toward people like it, it, it and she doesn't really get Kenzie and she thinks about the fact that she doesn't get Kenzie but uh, we get an update that Kenzie is staying at her home uh, with some guardians and her parents are locked up again well that's good yeah <laughs> I really do like this moment and I think that's it's because there's this real tendency when you're reading a story to say that okay we've learned this character's backstory we get her now and 
we've had her interlude. We get her now. We understand her. We know we've, we've got her. But I think the book is showing us that just because we know what she's been through and we understand her a little bit better, a lot of what she presents to the world is still a mystery. Um, one of the cool things about the interlude structure that Wildwood does is we get a brief window into a character's head, but then that window shuts and we move on. People, especially the ones that Wild Bill writes in his stories, are not static. And just because we knew the way Kenzie was a few chapters ago doesn't mean we know the way she is right now. Stuff has happened to her since we were in her head. So we don't know how she was is doing necessarily. And I think in this way, we're like really successfully put back into Victoria's head, into her point of view. We understand Kenzie as much as she does, but not completely. And we're still worried about her. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and I think I think that the reason this chapter is focusing on Kenzie a little bit may be that I mean we do need to keep paying attention to her. We did not, you know, the the previous arc was not okay. We've now solved Kenzie's problem. It was uh, showing us what Kenzie's problem was so that we could at least get a, a grip on yeah. it. Yeah, and and as much as we want to say okay, maybe Kenzie has made progress, maybe she's made a little baby steps. Um, that problem is definitely not solved. Yeah, there's there's one more thing that's I think the introduction of a recurring beat that we see at least one more time throughout these chapters um, is the idea of masks, both literal and figurative, making it really hard to read people. Victoria says this in this moment, I wished I could see her face. The helmet she wore covered it. I had a sense of how she comported and conveyed herself now, and she gave away very little like this. So we're kind of introducing this concept that Victoria is trying as hard as she can to read Kenzie and to watch out for Kenzie. Um, but the mask makes things complicated and we'll, we'll circle back around to that when it's brought up again. Yeah. Uh, so finally dragon and defiant arrive and Victoria slips into a reverie about how in her view, a lot of the problems in Brockton Bay were due to a lack of leadership on the hero side, uh, which is an interesting interpretation of course. And she wants to talk to defiant and maybe understand what went wrong. Yeah. I really, really loved this moment. And I talked about this on my live tweet a bit because it was I had such a, a kind of strong reaction to this. And, and it was kind of a revelation for me as well as it was for Victoria, because one of my least favorite things about sequels is how they tend to take characters who go through these wonderful, complicated arcs who grow and change as people. And then in the sequel, they just kind of regress them back to an earlier state because they need them they don't know what else to do with them. They need them to, to do go through something. So we just regress them so we can just kind of go through that arc again. Um, I actually think Incredibles 2, a, a movie that came out, is like a perfect example of this, that we just regress our characters so we can have them do something again. Uh, hey, listen to our podcast on that episode. It's good. Yeah. Um, um, so, yeah. So we've now brought back Defiant and Dragon. And I have to be honest, for a bit, when they showed up in the interlude, I was kind of worried about this. These are two characters that I think just have this, this wonderful arc throughout the story and they, they grow and they change and they find each other and they, they are improved by each other. And I was worried that by bringing him back, bringing them back in the story, um, it might mess with that change in growth a little bit for the sake of the story. But in this moment, when, when Victoria is going through this stuff, I realized this is Defiant's purpose in the story now. And his role is not about regressing his character. It's about using the growth and change that he did have during the previous story to reflect on our protagonist, who is a person who 
doesn't know how she feels about second chances and doesn't believe in forgive and forget. And, and is having this this real problem getting through the idea that you've done really bad stuff in the past. And how can we how can we get to a place of forgiveness for that? So it, it's a, just a per, he's just a perfect reflection for her of, of trying to understand what that kind of change and redemption looks like. And that just made me so excited for what they can do with this character and how he revolves around Victoria going forward throughout the story. And I was like, yes, I should, I should never have worried. I should not have worried ever. I don't know why I was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that's a great observation. And I think uh, like from what we've seen of him in this chapter, it's evident that he is, he's, he's not regressed. He's, if anything, he's yeah. more, you know, he's further down the path of um, sort of, defeating his ego if you will because you know she she doesn't come on real strong and accusatory but she says some stuff that a person might find offensive you know the implications that you killed some of her family members basically and and he doesn't he doesn't become defensive If, if anything he appears to completely take it to heart and not try to make any excuses and this is exactly like you said this is Yes, this is defined at the end of at the end of Worm, and and it's and maybe we'll see, you know, maybe a, a second arc where he comes to terms with that. I don't know, but the the fact is that this is a a, a very complex and developing character, and I love that. Yeah, I do too. I, I really do. Uh, so um, one, so I, I mentioned before, like when, when when the dragon ship appears and she sees Defiant. She does that thing where she uh, spaces out. So <laughs> I think we're going to we, we may not do this perfectly, but um, we're going to attempt a victorious spaces out counter uh, on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> I think we uh, should do it for the rest of the book, frankly. <laughs> I mean, I wish yeah. we had started this at the beginning, but we, we right. didn't know that this was going to be a thing at the beginning. Exactly. I mean, it starts happening at the beginning. You're right, um, because this happens so many times in these three chapters that that Scott and I decided that we would, uh, we would point it out every time or yep. try to try to. Yeah. 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 So dragon and defiant, uh, give a speech and they, they teach us a bit about earth sea. They tell us the divergence was 600 years ago and that the world shift into religious fundamentalism has led to an enormous world population. Um, I think we may have known some of that, but it's cool to kind of be reminded of it if not, or if, if so, um, I kind of hope we go to earth sea at some point. Some of the remaining fallen have apparently gone over to the Earth's seaside, including the new Tomias branch, uh, which I'm not sure if we're if we know who that is or if we're supposed to have any clues. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we know who our members. We know the the Cape members of that branch. Right. But yeah, who the name goes back to. Maybe one of the speedrunners was named Thomas. Uh, so so you think it's a safe assumption to say like the, the speedrunners are the new Tomias branch and they're representing the the um tohu or, or whatever yes no, not tohu. i um yeah i know which me. which one you're yeah, i know which yeah, one you're right. thinking of those yeah. those those later end bringers are so hard to remember the first three it's so clear kansu there you go good job yeah. i'm proud of you yeah, um, yeah. I, I think i think that's i don't know if it's ever explicitly stated but that's the the feeling i get that um, cause we mentioned them specifically and then we also mentioned scapegoat. So there's a real feeling that yes, that these, these people that, that betrayed the rest of them and ran with the fallen are, are part of this new branch now. Yeah. And I, I, I feel like it's only a matter of time before we visit this, this, uh, uh, earth. 
frankly. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that the book has shown that it is, is too interested in kind of exploring and examining these different aspects of religion and spirituality and in, in some ways, and it's too rich of an exploration to ignore that given that it, it, it wants to do that. The fallen are this version of religious fundamentalism, but they were always like on the outskirts, right? They were never really in command. They were never in control in any kind of real way outside of their little cult. This is like a fully authoritarian religious regime that has been ruling a planet for hundreds of years. And it's a, it's a very interesting lens to look through this idea of spirituality and religion and, and perhaps how those things can be corrupted um, in to, to use, to seize power in a different way than the fallen did it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm really looking forward to see where, where this goes. Um, so Dragon further confirms that Teacher is behind the worst of the attacks, uh, mainly by helping to create portals. Um, now that we've firmly established what's going on beso- behind the scenes, we can take it as evidence that this is precisely not what's really going on, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I do feel like this, that it's all Teacher is like playing right into perceptions that everyone has so much that it kind of makes you believe that things have to be more complicated than that. Right. Um, we know, like we've been told that this, this whole earth sea stuff is just a distraction. It's just meant to, there's something else going on underneath it all. And I, I just, I just don't think the overall plot movement of this part of the book is going to be, remember that bad guy, he's just still doing bad things. Um, not that I don't think teacher is, not doing bad things. I'm sure he is. He's, he's teacher, but I just think there's more to it than that. Like it's, it's too simple to just be like, it's teacher. He's doing all this stuff. Yeah, I agree, but we'll just have to see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's another moment I just wanted to point out real quick here before we move on at the end of defiant speech, he gives this speech about cooperation, about how everyone needs to, to put aside their competition between hero squads and cooperate. And we'll talk more about that in a bit. Um, but we hear Sveta give this line that says, the wars finally reached us. And I know this is such like a subtle thing that's maybe not worth bringing up at all, but this it strikes me as part of the reason why I like Wildbow's writing so much. Nobody remarks on this, like nobody says anything, like no one responds to her. We don't even get to see an indication of how Sveta said this. Like it's just Sveta said there's no, there's no describing emotion attached to this sentence, but we know Sveta and we know Mm. that when, when they were talking about the possibility of war, she got so upset that she like told them they had to stop talking. Like she couldn't even hear it. And now it's here. So like there, there are these little moments and I know we've talked about this on worm many, many times, but there are these little moments of characterization that can go unobserved that don't even have to call attention to themselves, but still impact you because you know the character so much. Like we don't need Victoria to say, Oh, I I'm really worried about Sveta because she was like, really, she was like really upset about this idea of war. We don't need to do that. We just, we know it, we know it. And it's just there. And it's just like put there in front of us and we can just, have a little little bit of flavor a little bit more character moments without having to go into full expository few sentences on those yeah. things yeah he spins Wildbow spins the energy to get this rube goldberg machine of characters running yeah and once once it's running he you know metaphorically runs around and 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 adjusts things here and there as the story progresses but 
doesn't necessarily need to, to manually manipulate every single element because right. you're now you're now doing a lot of that work for him. You're keeping the characters in your head and he trusts you to do that. And that's I agree. That is unique and that is really cool. Yeah. And it, there's another moment of it in this very section, too, because Sveta says that she's going to go to Weld because Weld's trying to get to her and he's constantly mobbed by people. And we have Capricorn say, I'll come, too. And you have to remember, oh, yeah, Tristan loves this dude. <laughs> and like, yeah. it's not commented on. No one says anything about it. Just like, oh, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. You can imagine him saying it like an excited, like uh, fanboyish way. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, the team kind of tries to comfort Natalie, uh, but does a terrible job overall. Um, and then toward the end of this interaction, Natalie says capes are neat in a sarcastic way. Yeah, we'll get to that in a bit, Matt. I got a bone to pick with you. But all right, let's before we it. before we get there, I am fascinated by how Victoria handles this interaction, because it's the, the text says we might Capricorn said, putting a hand on her shoulder. He put an <laughs> emphasis on might, but it didn't feel like enough emphasis to change the meaning of his statement. He was usually better about wording and presentation leaving it up to me to try to rally the troops. We're tenacious. We've made it this far. I think this is pretty indicative of Victoria's state of mind that like, okay, Tristan put an emphasis on might, but it was not enough emphasis. And she kind of takes this as like, I guess it's up to me attitude. And there's something very, um, Carol about that (laughs) in my Mm -hmm. mind that she's like, I got to do it. It's my turn now. And then, of course, immediately after this, Victoria spaces out again. Ding. That's number two. Number two. Yeah. Um, and and starts thinking about how screwed they are. So she just said, it's up to me to rally the troops. And then she spaces out and was like, oh, God, we're we're really screwed. And then the next thing she says to the group after just trying to rally them is about how the speedsters and scapegoat betrayed them and joined the bad guys. And it's just like, it's really great job rallying there, Vic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. True. So. Let's get to let's get let's talk about Natalie a little bit, okay? because it's so here. Here's how the sarcastic capes are neat line is is written in the story. Natalie says capes are neat. Natalie said in a way that made me think she was being sarcastic. We'll crowd watch. Right. And look, I don't I don't want to fully jump to any conclusions here, but like. The, the way this sentence is wording, I think, is very specific and interesting to me because, like, you could easily write the sentence as capes are neat. Natalie said sarcastically, but it's not written that way. It's written capes are neat. Natalie said in a way that made me think she was being sarcastic. Victoria has shown throughout the her interactions with Natalie that, like, she generally frustrates her and she doesn't like her. Like, I just remember all the times when she was like, like, like fashion destroying her <laughs> like oh, your fashion's yeah. so bad so i don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that maybe look maybe natalie actually does think capes are neat um like her mentor is carol and like she agreed to be a law person that helps out capes so like i'm not saying she's not frustrated by capes that capes are often frustrating her especially when it comes to legal things i completely agree with that but i just think the perhaps the sarcasm that Victoria is picking out here is more uh, in her head than it is in Natalie's intent. I, yeah, I, I think it. I think it is too much of a stretch, Scott. It oh, is too much of a stretch. Really? I do. Also, I mean, like the context of this is basically Capes talking about 
all the horrible cape problems that exist in the world and then a couple of capes being shitty at each other and like one of them walking away and and then right on the heels of that she's like I, it's hard for me to imagine her saying in response to all of this capes are neat we'll <laughs> we'll crowd watch right so um i i i feel like um victoria is reading her as being sarcastic if if anything um it it probably is subtle because natalie's probably not going to like make a sick burn on capes (laughs) in in like a crowd of capes um but yeah it's i i i have this sense actually and and i think it's interesting because this this disagreement actually reveals kind of a set of disagreements about natalie's character perhaps which is that like maybe the whole reason she's in like cape law is that she resents the capes or or capes did something bad to her or somebody in her family and then got off scot-free because of all of the like special privileges they get and she wants to make sure that the new status quo that that she's helping to craft basically um in a very minor role obviously doesn't give capes the kind of carte blanche that victoria is used to you know and maybe that's the kind of thing she was talking about when she referred to like you know things are going to be different victoria things are going to be different (laughs) I think that's a, a very fair read and I, I will not say you are wrong. Um, and, and yeah, I, I don't, I don't think the line read of Natalie saying capes are neat is like fully like gung ho positivity, positivity, like capes are neat. This is the best. I'm having a great time, but I don't, I think, I think Victoria is constructing an image of this person that is, she doesn't like me. She doesn't like us. And um, she is here to completely stop me from from doing the things I want to do. And I just Mm -hmm. don't think that that's who Natalie is, really. Um, I I think I I go back like once again to her association with Carol and how much Victoria doesn't like that. But I think the fact that she respects Carol as much as she does shows that on some level she appreciates capes. Yes, I I agree with you that she probably thinks the law needs to rein in capes a little bit. Um, Her frustration with their behavior is very indicative of that. Um, But I I don't see her as this person that is like secretly like capes. Yeah, I think now that we've had this bitter and acrimonious. This is the uh, closest we've ever gotten to fighting on this podcast. Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, I, I, I will I will say that I I'm I don't actually care as much what her position actually is <laughs> after this whole thing as, i don't actually no, I just, care well I, I just think it's interesting that that what's interesting here i i i think is the fact that we are so um suspicious of victoria's perspective on things that we that we can legitimately ask uh is it possible that this per that, that your read on this person is just 100 percent wrong and and I can't say like I, I can't actually say no, Scott. Of course, her read is is correct because like no, I mean everything about this book is indicating that Victoria is not super laser good at at, uh, at reading situations, especially when they are like tainted by the involvement of her family. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just think that's that's pretty cool. Um, I and then that- we'll uh, eventually get the uh, correct answer and see which one of us is right. <laughs> I think that's a really fantastic way of framing this whole thing that that you're absolutely right, that this is more indicative of 
what kind of protagonist Victoria is than anything else. Yeah. Which is why I'm I'm continually shocked when people call her boring or or <laughs> I just don't get it. I just don't get it at all. Yeah, no, me neither. I don't I don't see it that often though. So uh Victoria and Lookout now go to speak with Defiant, and after getting pumped up by Victoria, Looksee takes a chance to ask Dragon why she merged Looksee's eye tech with someone else's tech. Yeah, I wanna I wanna zoom in on this really quick because I, I I'm really into this interaction and I think it's really important. Victoria and Kenzie are flying towards Dragon and Defiant and and Dragon has used some of Kenzie's tech, which uh, from our perspective, we're like, holy shit, that's awesome. I mean, like if Dragon sees something and it's like, that's good enough to use, like that's a big deal. Good job, Kenzie. But she's a little bummed out because uh, she sees that her tech was mixed with someone else's and, and, and that's kind of an implicit signal to her that, hey, your stuff wasn't good enough. So I had to mix it with something else. Now, Old Kenzie would have been upset about this and would probably like spy on Dragon and try to figure out what kinds of stuff she needs and then spend uh, an entire week without sleeping, like building a thing just to prove that she's valuable and wanted and needed. But Victoria knows that now, and she literally approaches the situation with WWAD. What would Ashley do? And. The response Kenzie says is she would tell you, knock it off, believe in yourself, you're awesome, like trust yourself. And it works because Kenzie gets to Dragon and asks her point Blake, hey, why why did you do this? Why did you mix my tech with someone else's? Instead of spying on her to get information, she just simply asks her a question. And and you think of this and you think of how different her life would have been, how how different things with her foster parents have had gone if she had just walked up to them and and talked to them and said things like, hey, I, like, I really like you guys. Like, I, I feel really safe here. But also that feeling of being safe and happy makes me scared because I don't want to lose that. And can we talk about this? How different it would have been instead of spying on them, looking up stuff on the Internet and doing all these things. And I just really feel like this is a big, big big step for this girl and that makes me scared because we have this looming threat of of what gary's going to do on the horizon and we could have her like making progress and then just see it just ripped away yeah that's true i mean i i I share your fear actually but i and i I agree that this is a big thing like this is how this is how people change right like you right you, you you take a risk and you you take a risk that maybe deep deep parts of your mind think is a terrible a terrible choice because of how your life has gone so far you've you've always been punished for taking this kind of risk but that's just because you grew up with abusive parents of course when you take this kind of risk in real life you get rewarded for it you get invited into dragon's ship you get shown all this cool stuff and now your mind learns just a a little bit a nudge in the direction of maybe that's not such a risk maybe i can maybe i should do that kind of thing more and that that always that always helps that's that's very necessary yeah. i think yeah man that's a perfect way of 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 phrasing it yeah that like she was conditioned into this idea that i can't talk about these things i can't ask these questions because i'll be immediately punished for them and the only way out of that is to retrain yourself and the best way to do that is to be surrounded by people that are not going to lash out at you and are not going to abuse you for asking questions or asking for help or just being a curious human being. That's the way to get better. And, 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 you know, props to Victoria for recognizing this and for framing, um, the whole thing 
with with this in mind, like what would Ashley tell you to do? Like maybe maybe you need to push. Maybe you need to not be afraid of the negative side of this. Maybe you need to to search search for what the positive side of this interaction could be. Like that's that's really great of her. And I'm I'm glad she she doesn't understand Kenzie. She's still worried about Kenzie. We are, too. But she she understands enough to approach this situation in a way that I think helps the girl make progress. Yeah. I also just now noticing like it kind of indicates how much respect Victoria has for Ashley to she's admitted like, man, Ashley does get this girl better yeah. than me. And I'm just I'm just, I'm not even going to give her advice. I'm going to say, well, what would Ashley say in this situation? Yeah. Um, and it works. So I, I love the Kenzie saying I'm not the swan song whisperer, though. That's, that's a really <laughs> yeah. nice touch. Yeah, I thought that was pretty good. Uh, yeah, so as Dragon takes Luxie inside the craft to no doubt take all kinds of secret recordings of all Dragon's tech, uh, Victoria confronts Defiant about what happened on the day Leviathan attacked Brockton Bay. Colin is honest and tells her he doesn't know if his actions contributed to Shielder's death. Yeah, I, I really love just about everything in this moment. As you talked about before, Defiant is not defensive here. He is honest. Like, he, he probably didn't have to tell her the truth. Like, I, I don't know how someone is going to prove that he, like, was lied to her and was not completely honest with her here, but he does it because he's he's taken responsibility, and and this is what shows it. Um, there's, there's some other stuff I want to bring up, though, with you because I want to circle back around to this idea of masks once again um, because... Like we echoed our earlier beat with Lookout, we have this moment where she asks this question to Defiant and, and says, I couldn't see his face or read his, his expression. Same as Lookout. Same as Dragon. Was it because I'd grown up with New Wave that I found it so frustrating now? I'd always considered myself a cape at heart, and now I was feeling this annoyance at the omnipresence of something fundamental. Masks. Secret identities. Did I jar them just as much? Did they look beneath my hood and expect to see a mask there? I find this whole thing really interesting that Victoria is a cape and, and therefore has always been ingrained in the cape mindset. And we've seen throughout the story when any conflict between human and cape has arisen, she tends to side with the cape side. And that makes sense. She's one of them. But we're seeing here as she struggles to help her friends recover and as she struggles to recover herself, she's finding some of the more capish tendencies to be a hindrance to that very recovery the fundamentals of cape dumb masks again both literal and, and figurative secret identities they make it so much harder to understand the people beneath them so much harder to see them and how can you help someone when you don't really understand them what we might be seeing here to me is is Victoria kind of transitioning to a new kind of equilibrium. We said last week that in this rising conflict uh, uh, that the, the Gary-esque human idea of all capes are bad and should be stopped is problematic and is not going to work. Um, but also the capes method of hiding things, of covering things up, of masking things. That's not really the way to do it either. The slogan of the story is the rules have changed. And if that's true, then maybe it's time we stop doing the cape stuff like we did it before. Maybe the true path to recovery is the re removal of these masks. Capes need to see people and people need to see capes as people. And and, and when you see when I see Victoria um, kind of positioning herself where she's she's definitely not fully on the human side, but she's starting to see the problematic parts of capes. Maybe she can represent the symbol of this change of, of what 
a cape in this new world needs to be a person who um, is a, a cape, but also is unmasked, is a human, is showing themselves. And I, I think I, I, I in this moment, I kind of saw where her role through the story could go. And I was really into it. Yeah, that's that's really great. I, I love all of this. You know, the like you like you pointed out, the the role of masks made sense in the reconstruction of the superhero genre, which is what Worm was as like, OK, they need to protect their identities for a set of plausible sense making reasons. Those reasons don't really apply in the same way in, in this situation on Earth Gimel where everyone is refugees. They're all clinging on by their skin of their teeth. There, there's not really there's not really room for this cops and robbers thing to breathe in Gimel and and capes and, and um, masks are a big part of that. And I, I think maybe maybe they do need to go. And I also agree, like having placed Victoria as the protagonist of this story like she's one of the only I mean, her and her family are, are the only um, one of a very small number of, of capes that we know who, who are who are unmasked. Um, yeah. And that has to be that has to either have been intentional or, you know, that element's not going to go unused. Yeah. So that, not that it has gone unused. I mean, we've seen consequences of her having of her being unmasked. But I think it could be very fundamental to the story, actually. Yeah. Well, I mean, like when they did it in Worm. Uh, the world was not ready for that yet. Obviously, we saw severe consequences to New Wave's decision to be the parahumans that were unmasked. Um, but the rules have changed. Maybe maybe they were just a little too early on it. They, they, the world needed to end before they said we need to start this this new wave of capes unmasking themselves. And and I love this idea that she could represent that going forward into the future. And that's that's the real road to recovery. Yeah. Secondly, the the other thing, these are very long points of mine. I'm sorry. <laughs> like like we said, I, I love I love how the text shows that Colin tells the absolute truth here. Um, that that like you said that this this all confirms that his change is genuine. That he is truly a different person now. That this is the way he is. And I really love how the text describes this. I just wanted to to read some of this because. He she asks him, like, were you responsible for her her family member's death? And he says, I don't know, Victoria Dallin. And there's something to me of him using her full name there that like shows the weight of it, like the, the formality of it, that he's acknowledging her complete self when he's responding to this. But then there, this line, there was something less crisp and confident in his voice, more momentarily lost that left me feeling like he genuinely didn't know, maybe even to the extent that it wasn't something he truly considered before now. And. I I love that because like even as someone like has changed the things we did follow us right like they, they're still there and you can learn new aspects of the terrible things you did every day it's just you have to live in a, a place where you can um like take responsibility for that and that's where he is yeah yeah that's what I think oh my god sorry I'm trying to turn my phone off <laughs> <laughs> um yeah yeah i mean it, it's well, once again I mean, we talked about talked about colin before and and how you know this is really getting to him it, it's it's not just um it, it I, I don't know like I, I was i was really struck by this and like not only just happy to see colin for like fan service reasons but like oh oh we're getting we're not just like seeing colin again we're 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 actually bringing him back into the story fully and yeah and that's what that's what's really exciting about it 
Yeah. And, and like, like you said, and you've said this a lot that characters change in the background, like characters don't freeze in the story because we're not seeing them. So even we've, we've seen the Colin as he made his way to the end of worm, but he's still in this progress and he's changed since the last time we saw him seemingly for the better. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I just have to read, um, I just have to read this, this one part, this one thing he says, because it's like worm summarized Mm -hmm. in one sentence where Colin says, my mistake was that I decided I was fine with villains dying. If it meant the monster could be slain. So we have like this character that's gone through this redemption arc and he's generally seen by the end of the story, but by most people as like a, a guy who's done everything he can to redeem his past mistakes. And he is fully admitting that his mistake was letting people die at to kill the big bad monster. Yeah. That's worm. <laughs> this <Yeah>. worm. <laughs> yep. We'll just leave that there. Yeah, and let people, I'm not going to say we'll, anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then of course this chapter, this first chapter ends with Victoria using his guilt uh, to ask, I don't know, to ask for a favor to visit the teammates in prison. Yeah, that's kind of, it's kind of fucked up. <laughs> I mean, she like admits that like, I didn't intend this. This is why I approached this with him, but I, I can use him. I'll just yeah. use him. Um, Get some leverage yeah. out of his obvious heartbreak in this moment. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I don't want, like, I get it. I, I totally get it. I get why she's doing it. But it was really surprising to just be like, all right, time to use this dude. Um, especially when it's Colin. It's Colin. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, he's he's strong. Yeah, he can he handle is. it. He can he can handle the weight. I love yeah. that. It's in the next chapter when yeah. when she's like, yeah, I think I just like it's like took all the weight that was on my shoulders and threw it on him. And Kenzie's like, yeah, he can handle it. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, right. well, maybe not. Yeah. He's got those robot legs, though. All right. So eight dot two picks up immediately, more or less. Uh, Victoria goes into a train of thought about the two types of thinker of uh, tinkers, which roughly map onto introverts and extroverts, uh, except more related to how they conduct their tinkering activities and their attitude about it. She also goes further and notes that the male tinkers tend to be the internal types and the female tinkers tend to be the more excitable ones. And then this segues to a line of thought about how she regrets not being able to study parahumans professionally. Yes, this is really a a pretty fascinating tangent she just goes off on. And I like some of the the subtle bits of dramatic irony where she's like, wait a minute, Dragon's a girl, but she doesn't fit the the paradigm. And it's like, well, is she? You don't know she's a robot. Nobody knows she's still nobody knows who. What is a list of people that know Dragon's an AI? It's Um, very small. Yeah, I'm not sure, actually. I don't remember how far that propagated because, I mean, people... People knew. I mean, yeah. Saint Saint told people, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I think Tattletale knows. But anyway, but um, it, it just really strikes me upon an analyzing these chapters after reading them how much they're working towards setting up the plan that Victoria gets by the end of this because she goes through this whole line of thought about um, about the different kinds of tinkers and wishing she would. Um, she could study them. And it basically ends with this moment of her saying, 
I wanted to be able to do research and dig for answers. We'd already unraveled some of the big mysteries, and by some tragedy, we couldn't actually work on them. We weren't sharing information. So this whole big tangent ends on this moment of her saying, we're not cooperating, we're not sharing, we're not really working together. And mm-hmm. it just it just goes back to this idea of they beat Scion because for one fleeting moment in the history of the planet, the most powerful capes in the world realized, thanks to a, a slight nudge by a little bug girl, that working together was the only way to stop the big bad guy. And then they did it. And they kind of just went back to doing their own stuff again. And Victoria is seeing that frustration. And, and it, it makes sense that this is leading us to this this moment at the end of the chapter where she says, look, here's how we need to do this thing. We need to set up a structure where we're all working together again. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love that the, there's that thematic through line between the two stories. I agree. Yeah. And I think it's cool how subtly we're kind of setting that up and reinforcing that through these early moments of these chapters that like it just every one of her like tangents keeps coming back to this idea of cooperation we're not cooperating we're not talking we're not we need to do this yeah yeah that's a great point i don't think i i pulled that out i mean first of all uh increment the reverie uh zoning out counter Um, (laughs) yes but 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 yeah i mean it's it this does show that her her thoughts are tending in certain directions systematically i think that's very important to point out yeah. Yeah. So we then overhear the two Tinker women talking shop, and Kenzie mentions again that everything she makes basically has to be a cube. Uh, not not literally everything, but it's it seems like she has this restriction where things end up being in boxes or cubes, and this leads us to learn that Defiant is good at working around such things. Yeah. Look, Matt. I know there's a part of me that should be worried about this. I, I know, as you said, Kenzie probably likes spied her way into so much dragon tech that she's going to use to do things in the future and that could that could go really bad and i know defiance ability to make kenzie's super powered spying devices like smaller and more compact is even more dangerous but fuck all that (laughs) yeah there's dragon mom and defiant dad now have baby kenzie and i love it like anyone who can turn defiant into a non-asshole is probably like a, a perfect person who can maybe help Kenzie. <laughs> that, that, yeah. that, that's that's how I'm I'm excusing my feeling of happiness for this moment. Yeah, and also I want to see some badass tinker shit. Okay, that like a, yeah, selfishly make something. Yeah, cool. selfishly, right? Make something cool. I don't really care what it's used for. Yeah, of course I'm probably going to be eating my words when this all goes sideways really, really badly in the future. But oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. That's that's why we're all here. Yes. Um, yeah, so next, Victoria and Kinsey head to talk to Tempera and Fumehood. Victoria repeats her lie about the about there being a power nullifier that allowed her to get shot, and Kinsey mentions having done a lot of research on lead poisoning recently. I mean, when your parents are trying to slip it in your pasta, I guess you should know what it does, right? Yeah, right. That's that's our that's I think that's our second hint that they tried to specifically give her lead poisoning. Yeah, yeah. Um. And then there's this there's this dialogue where uh, Victoria says uh, that thing about it being cool to get shot. Don't take that as an actual example. I told her, ha ha. She said, give me some credit. That was part of the general problem. I had no idea how much credit to give her. Um, I just I like that as a bit of humor and also just like a great example of, again, Victoria being self-aware of the fact that she does not really get Kinsey 
and um, doesn't seem to doesn't really seem to be learning to get her at a very high rate either. Yeah, I mean, this is the girl who threw a crammer at, at Mama Mather's head just so her friend wouldn't feel bad about being the only member of the murder club. So yeah. I can kind of see your, the the logic of, oh, people will like me more if I get shot. Well, right. let's, let's do that. Yeah, that's a Kenzie line of thought. Yeah. So Victoria finally admits to someone that Breakthrough is her team, uh, but it's it's an I guess so, uh, not very committed. Uh, I, I, I feel like the trajectory of victoria's arc here tends toward like a greater sense of of belonging with this team over time i mean i mean that's that's what i want to see i should say like because at first it was like it was like i'm not really part of the team i'm a coach and then it was like literally waggles her hand and like a i don't know (laughs) and 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 now and now it's like i I guess so um and i'm just i I don't know this is definitely a, a track that i'm that i'm that i'm in for you know yeah I, th- I think you're right um it's it's so funny that her knee-jerk reaction in this moment is to say no to say that the team had broken up and even she admits to herself that that's not true we're like back we're totally back together again um i, I completely like that that's that's where our track is heading victoria is this person who's very unsure of who she is and where she belongs and her she's got this one laser focused goal of stopping bad things the the bad things that happen to her stopping that from happening to other people but that i don't think that's that's not enough of an existence for a human um it's just the mission it's not like life and i i i agree that she's going to be all about team breakthrough by the end of it unless unless they're all dead <laughs> oh god this actually honest to god when i wrote this it sent me down a rabbit hole of wondering which one of the members of this team is going to be the first to die because I I feel like it's probably going to happen at some point. And I went down the list and every single one of them devastated me. Like I have, like if you Sophie's choice to me, which one of these people I would want to die, I would not know how to answer that. I don't think I could do it. Yeah. Yeah. What's funny is I think a similar situation came up in worm and, and there was definitely a, preference of of who was less important yeah and it's not like i didn't like the characters at all um i just i don't these these people no don't take them away don't do that to them well yeah i mean these are all like wounded and 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 we love them and uh yeah don't don't take them away everyone thinks i hate brian i don't hate brian (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i was thinking that um i know so just this line, just had to pull this line out. Um, Victoria comments on uh, common sense. Fumehood replies, oh yeah, that's me. I exude common sense. Yeah, we know all about your common sense, poison apple. Yeah, like it's, I'm in this point where every time she talks, I just, I'm imagining her asshole tattoo. Yeah, you have an asshole just, tattoo. That's just, yeah. that's just. Every sentence, I'm assuming she also says, yeah. also, I have an asshole tattoo. Yeah, so. defining characteristic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so next, the parental units stop by and they ask Victoria if she's had any contact with Crystal. And then they try to pry out the address or rather uh, Carol tries to pry out the address where Victoria is living. Yeah. And, and as we mentioned at the start of the show, there's a lot of table setting in these chapters. And, and this is one of those where we get this little bit about Crystal having not checked in or being missing, which is surely not something that's going to come back around again uh, in any kind of terrible, depressing way. 
at no. all. No. Uh, well, one one thing I didn't point out was was how eager Fumehood is to like be defensive of Victoria and, and like like yeah d- and and distrustful of family. I, I thought that was interesting. <laughs> I loved <laughs> I loved uh, are these enemies as they approached and. <laughs> Victoria's response is, they're my parents. And Fumehood says, you, th- you didn't answer my question. Yeah. Right. Uh, that's that's a really perfect little beat there. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, Matt, Victoria had this wonderful I- interaction with with Carol back in 7.4. And, and, I, and I was genuinely excited about her, her dealing better with Victoria. And I think she does a generally okay job here. But there are just moments where she's also just got a fucking Carol, right? Like... Yeah. Like the, I think she like she's this person that just constantly means well, but is just rubbing you the wrong way. Like this moment where uh, Lookout says she's changed her name and she's like, oh, did you change? Be careful. Rebranding is a useful tool, but not if done in excess. And I'm just like, no one fucking asked you, Carol. Just, yeah. just back off. Right. No well, thank you for your lecture, man. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for the unsolicited advice. Actually, so we announced uh, on Daily Planet that we're going to be rebranding and changing our name next month. And someone responded to that tweet with rebranding is a useful tool, but not if done in excess. <laughs> and I had forgotten um, that that was a quote from Worm. So my gut reaction was just like, who the f- what? what? <laughs> yeah. And then I was like, oh, that's um, actually hilarious. Well done. Hilarious. <laughs> but my yes. gut reaction was and I think that's that's why this this scene with Carol rubbed me the wrong way is because like, I think the gut reaction to that kind of statement is like, who, no one asked you about that. Like, like back off. Yeah. Especially it's, since it's Fumehood is standing right the fuck there. Right. And, and, and Carol might actually know her because they were both in Boston at the same yeah, time. Yeah. And would know all about that, that particular, uh, yeah. In fact, the, the fact that she knows who Fumehood is, suggests to me that this was a passive aggressive dig at fumehood <laughs> oh yeah i'm not I think sure if that's was. true I, mean, I think it was i yeah. mean also like 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 victoria is is rebranding herself as well like i don't think this was a meant as a dig at, at victoria but like yeah. she's also working at redefining herself like yeah. she just picked a new name so yeah the thing about carol is like she'd be fine if she just stop like halfway <laughs> through whatever it is yeah. that she planned on saying yeah. like oh how's your you haven't heard from your cousin oh okay well let me know if you hear from her yeah bye <laughs> then like that would have been a great like oh oh that was that was refreshing i got to see my mom i didn't feel pushed or manipulated in any way yeah. you know yeah and yeah. i think that's that's a perfect thing for the sentence too because like if you break the sentence up the first part is okay oh did you change End of sentence. You're, yeah. you're doing great. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny. Yeah. Okay, so Tempera then prompts everyone to share what they want out of Capedom. Things get very philosophical. Uh, Victoria admits that she would like prestige. Um, and then, like, immediately, the thought that this might not really be her thought, her desire, that she might just be channeling her mom sends her into this like instant death spiral remembering when her mind and heart and body weren't hers at all and uh she goes to a real dark place real quick or real quick real quick there ding, ding. <laughs> the victoria yeah, zones out counter is are we at are we at four i think we're i at think four. we're at, i think we're maybe maybe at, yeah i think four yeah, yeah yeah um yeah i mean this is like this is awful and i feel so terrible for her i, I like 
at this point, I don't know much else to say about these these dives back into her like her trauma. Like it's it's just it's really rough to watch. I feel bad for her every single time. Um, and, and you see kind of how like I think Victoria holds herself up very well to the people around her, but also to the people reading her. This whole warrior monk persona that she's going to come off as always collected and calm um, that that we often don't get to see the level at which Victoria is struggling just existing day to day. And then we have moments like this where it kind of breaks, it breaks through a little bit. And then we're like, we have to remind ourselves like, oh yeah, this girl who seems like she's got everything and she's, she's offering advice and trying to help the people around her. She's holding on by a thread. Mm. Yeah. Um, It's, it's, it's real worrisome. I mean, and then she comes back from it pretty quickly, but we, we kind of know she's described what this is like enough for us to know that like, she doesn't really pop back. You know, she's, she's down now. Like this, the fact that this happened, it's, it's like that hand pushing her underwater thing. She's it's, it's sapping her. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she she kind of snaps back mid conversation and has to catch up, which is really nice touch that like, yes, like there's this interesting thing in narrative, especially first person narrative, when you kind of go into the mind of uh, a person and they're thinking and processing that like oftentimes we let this happen and we don't like we almost kind of pause things. So we're not missing anything that's happening in the real world as they work through stuff. But when Victoria goes through these zone outs, the the top keeps spinning, Matt, and things are still going on. And she like has to zone back into it and catch up on the conversation. Yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think that's, that's, you know, very often when you're writing a point of view character, you want to, you want to communicate that they're, you're communicating their inner impressions, which aren't necessarily lengthy, um, complex, emotional inward journeys. But in that case, in this case, we are communicating, in fact, that, yes, these these are completely distracting and completely absorbing. Um, uh, and, and yeah, I mean, again, this happened four times in two chapters so far. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, and before we get back to the rest of the team and continue the chapter, I just wanted to point out once again that the story takes the time to show how wonderful and happy Sveta and Weld are. And this certainly can't be a thing that lasts. Um, it's going to be devastating or, or maybe. Maybe the fact that it's so obviously not going to last means it will last, but like it'll be like a monkey's paw where like everyone on the earth will be dead except for Sveta and Weld and and Wildbo will say you got your wish and then cackle yeah. maniacally. They're, they're trapped together in a gray boy loop. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. That's not even what I was thinking. You made it worse. Of course. Of course. You can always make it worse with parahumans. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so when they go back to rejoin their team, Sveta admits that she gets a bad vibe from Dragon, like Dragon is operating on a level where everyone else is inconsequential, mere mortal, she says. And Cryptid doesn't like her either, but for different reasons. Yeah, this is a really interesting to beat because I think um, the initial reaction here, if you're if you're like tuned in with your characters, is is to go, oh, yeah, maybe I mean, we don't know how much dragon changed from the the whole Pandora thing that happened. Maybe, maybe we're looping back around to the AI is evil plot. Mm-hmm. Um, but but thinking about it and really looking into this chapter is I, I I think once again we're seeing a representation 
into the problems with capes and this idea of the way things were. Sveta mistrusts Dragon because she sees her and Legend and Valkyrie as these super powerful capes who could have possibly been tied into the gold morning stuff. And they still don't know, like, how much they knew. And like, like she says, like, did they ignore stuff? If they were so tapped into the source of, of all this bad stuff, did they ignore things? Did they look the other way? Um, were they aware? Like, was Dragon aware of of everything Cauldron was doing? And this is Cape communication all over again. This is sharing of resources, this is sharing of data, this this thing that Victoria was wishing they did more of, this thing that Gary last arc was complaining about so much. Like, we're not cooperating still. Cooperation has broken down, not just between humans and capes, between capes and capes. Like, it's just like over and over again, I think we're reinforcing this idea. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's really interesting. Um, and I, I don't, I don't think we're looping back around to the, to the dragon is, is an evil. Yeah. I, I don't, think, I, think I don't if think anything, we are. No, no. Yeah. I, I think this is perhaps more meant to show us more about the characters who were speaking. You know, it's meant to show us more about where Sveta's right. head is at and where, and where Chris's head is at. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I, yeah. Chris doesn't even offer a reason, really, for why. <laughs> he's just like, yeah. yeah he's like, I just don't trust yeah. people, oh, Chris. basically. We're going to talk about Chris next chapter a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So they start talking about updating their team's jurisdiction, and Victoria proposes something more grand than that. Something like a hero community organization with a critical mass to integrate and share knowledge and resources between teams. So how do you feel about this idea, Matt? Um, to me, it seems like this is kind of a combination of some of the best parts of the old ways while still trying to improve upon them and encourage a, a kind of better behavior amongst the hero teams. Um, and it also it also brings back in this cooperation of villains, this idea that this this agreement that they had back in the old ways that, hey, it will as long as you don't go too bad, maybe you can help us out when things get really bad. So um, it's kind of like I think doing what I think the story wants to do, which is learn from the past and improve upon those things, but not be will not be set in it. Yeah. As Victoria says, she's kind of working it out as she goes along. So it's yeah. not concrete enough to necessarily have a firm opinion on like, Oh yeah, this is, this is great. But this is the moment that I was talking about when I said, uh, Oh, this is the beacon. Victoria is going to e either be the beacon or create the beacon that that signals and draws together um, all of the hero organizations and it, it's a new paradigm so like you know before on on bet there was the protectorate the the prt which was essentially you know disproportionately powerful uh due to both numbers and due to the resources they had at their disposal and the cauldron um you know favors they got and then there were the corporate teams and 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 you know spin-off teams like New Wave and whatever but 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 there was it, it was mainly it was it seemed like it was very much centralized around the protectorate and th we no longer have that especially with the wardens being taken out because they were kind of the candidate for the replacement now it's this much more um perhaps egalitarian framework where if there's going to be a powerful hero force it's going to have to be a, a a community of of lots of different hero teams which may have different objectives but they're all on the same side you know philosophically um and, and that's that's kind of where i was imagining this going yeah i like that a lot yeah 
Cool. cool. All right, so let's move on into 8.3. So Victoria checks up on her on the hideout near Hollow Point, which nobody has been in for a few days. Uh, and wind is apparently blown into the room and scattered papers everywhere, which Victoria painstakingly cleans up. Can we just take a moment here to appreciate the symbolism here? It's not complex. It's not like hidden. Um, it's just really simple imagery that gets across a point very quickly. The wind has blown through the hideout and things are in chaos. The, the story has primed us since the portals open to know to to get this idea that wind equals portals. Um, so now it, we're just we're just reinforcing the state of disarray by showing that the wind has come through here, has come through their hideout and just thrown everything into into a mess. And then we see Victoria try deciding to clean it all up. And that crystallizes her goal throughout all this thing that the uh, things have come in, have, have thrown everything into chaos and she's going to be the one to clean it up. It's so simple, but so effective. Yeah, it's a, it's a perfect callback to the beginning of this arc where we get these notes of foreboding, the wind, the, the moodiness, and even their, even their sacrosanct little, little hideout has not been spared um, the force of this foreboding presence creeping into the into the arc. Yeah, uh, I think that's that's great. And yeah, like you say, her her immediate action is well, I'm gonna I'm gonna set it right. Yep. So as she's cleaning, she finds a piece of paper and she reads a conversation between Tristan and Byron, kind of like an I am conversation, but written on paper. Uh, and she reads it. Uh, boundaries, yeah. Victoria. Yeah. Um, and the conversation is about the two of them, the two brothers, trying to negotiate a proper gift that Tristan can get Byron uh, in exchange for a favor Byron did him. And we see a lot about their relationship and its its difficulties. Yeah, uh, it's probably it's probably not something she should be reading. Uh, yeah, it is really personal, but I, I do appreciate it just because we get to see like how they've worked out a way to communicate with each other, because that's probably something that's very difficult for them. Um, and, and, and I like that we see this, this brief snippet of conversation between them and we see their two very distinct personalities, like starkly measured here. Like, um, Tristan is, is trying to suck up a little bit. Byron even calls him out on it. It's like, you gave me an extra 45 minutes. I owe you this and I'm going to get you a present. And it's like, just give me some clothes or something. I don't care. That's Byron's laid back thing. And then Tristan is like, how about, I get you something to push your style envelope because he's like trying to push him. And then like he's he's I don't want to call him manipulative, but he tr he pushes people a little bit. Um, and Byron yeah. is kind of like, no, like, don't do that. I this is the stuff I like. But other like, but you don't have to do anything for me. I'm cool. Like and it's just like this really short little conversation that just completely represents who these people are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think anybody who this is definitely something that happens with siblings. I think it happens with anyone you're close to where you get to a point where you're so, you're so close that you, that you test, you know, you, you push and, uh, um, it's not a great habit, but I think like every, everyone, yeah. certainly all siblings do this, especially when they're children, probably still when they're adults. Um, yeah. it's, uh, yeah. I, I also, um, I also appreciate that, we uh, we we use this little I am conversation at the beginning of the chapter to kind of prime us 
to this, the fact that a lot of, a lot of this chapter is going to be talking about Tristan and, and his, mm-hmm. his problems. So we, we start the chapter off and we immediately go to this I am conversation and we're kind of cued into the fact that maybe we're going to be dealing with this guy in a bit. And then of course he does show up. So it, it's, it's, it's like so much of writing is just laying the groundwork for stuff and, and paying it off. And, and it's so not, like one of the, the most fun things about analyzing stuff to me is seeing how all those tracks are laid down for you. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a good point. I, I, uh, didn't, I didn't, you know, there's, she, she noticed, she's noticing things about a lot of the other characters, but I agree that this specific text pointing at the conflict between Tristan and Byron is definitely priming us for that. So as she cleans up, she notes how poor the foundations of their world are. So many of the things that Gimel relies on are imported from other worlds, their food, their supplies, everything. Yeah. And, and as she thinks this, she, she thinks about how quickly everything was built in this quest to get things back to normal as fast as possible, that, that, that this poorly this world is poorly constructed and owes all that stuff to people in another world that they barely know. Earth Gimel is like a house of cards and like that wind's blowing the, the portals wind is it's knocking over the house. Look, it's not the perfect, <laughs> that's a perfect imagery. Um, but the thing that's really interesting to me is that in the middle of this, in the middle of this kind of hopelessness and this, this realization that she's having, she says, this is what we were now. This is how things are now. This is how things are now. Uh, we, this is a callback, Matt, to back all the way back in arc two, chapter seven, Victoria saw that written on the walls of hollow point. This is how things are now. And she looked at this and looked at it as a challenge. She looked at it and said, fuck that. I'm going to stop that from happen- happening. Now, six arcs later, we're back in hollow point and the same words come up again, but this time they're coming from Victoria. They're coming from our protagonist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, she, she's definitely remembering them. I'm not sure if she's necessarily remembering them with a like, this is how things are now, or, or if it's like, or, or if she's recognizing the echo of, I, I think what's happening, she's recognizing the echo of, of that in her thoughts and maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe taking that as a, as a warning. I'm, I'm not sure exactly. I, I would like to go back and read this no, part again, I, actually. I think you're right. I mean, that is, that is specifically her. I mean, it's, it's italicized here. That's kind of how we indicate like yeah. the, the line before this is where we were at is not italicized. This is how things are now is italicized. That is a, a, a structural indicator that we are, she is consciously calling back to those words that were said in that arc. You're absolutely right. Um, and, and I don't think that this is her saying you know, yep, they were right. They were right. But I also like some of the fights out of her a little bit here. Like, of course, she's going to fight. She's cleaning up the room. Like, that's what she's doing. But like, she is in a a really rough place. Like we've seen throughout the last few interactions she's had with people that she's dove into this like zone out, like dealing with her own issues. She's she's beaten down. And we're going to see in her, her conversation with with Tristan, she admits that she's probably drowning too that like um and and she's not going to give up but like she's realizing that things are like so much worse than she probably thought they were like the the this is how things are now thing was a challenge that she's going to say no but but she's realizing that even the very foundation on which their world is built is crumbling and not theirs nothing nothing is there so like 
it's just so much harder than I think she thought it was ever going to be. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I mean, this is yet yet more stuff in the in the you know first part of this arc, indicating like yeah, I mean foreboding, 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 um, and and I think not only is it communicated to us, but we're seeing that Victoria is starting to get it. Yeah, 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 and and like we said earlier, Victoria does not let her warrior monkness slip very often. So I think that I think the fact that we call back to that saying, the fact that we had this this specific callback is her like letting slip how beaten down she is. And yeah. now she's going to have to help someone else who's possibly drowning even worse than she is. Yeah, that's right. Speaking of people, other people who are drowning, uh, she also finds some doodles by Kinsey uh, with praise from various entities on the paper, which for some reason makes me very suspicious. You're, you're chocolating again, Matt. This is, you're just you're you're too paranoid. Uh-huh. Um, this is just an analog version of the chatbots that she had created in the prologue. She just an, an, an analog version. Well, yeah, because they're just it's not it's not digital. They're just just drawings. What is their physical form? They're just Matt. It's are they robots? No, she's just drawing, Matt. She's just drawing. She's okay. doodling. You never doodled characters. I had a, a character when I was bored in math as a little kid called Super Math Destroyer, and he blew up the math problems that I didn't want to do. Okay. All right. That's that's fair. His nemesis was the math maniac who made the problems more complicated. I didn't like math. You had a rich inner life. Thank you. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. I'm going <laughs> to because I'm too worried at the alternative. I'm going to buy your explanation for now. Um, and then, of course, Victoria is surprised by Tristan's arrival. Uh, he comes in. Uh, at first, they're kind of alarmed at each other's presence because they weren't expecting anybody to be there, but then it's fine. Uh, and then he kind of sits down and he's kind of slumping around and being very serious and moody. He's not doing too good. Uh, he seems worse than we've ever seen him, really. And he immediately, like, immediately turns the conversation towards the difficulties of his life. He asks how she avoids drowning in the cape stuff. And she says nowadays she does feel like she's drowning, but only because other people are making life more difficult than it has to be. Yeah. Once again, like she admits that she's like, there's one slightly there's one small personal thing. But then there's a whole bunch of external things, too. That one small personal thing being the wretch, which is like the the source of all her issues right now. I think I think it's funny. She kind of like push pushes that out of the way. Um, to talk about the external a little bit, but man, I I, I just want to talk about like, I think, I think what the story has done with Byron and Tristan is, is really clever. Um, I, I talked about this a little when I was tweeting about this chapter, but like we've, we've built this up so slowly over the course of the book. Like we, we have, we have not focused on these two very often, but when, when we do, we always get like an update as to how, what their situation is. And then we move on and do something else. And then a, a few chapters later, we get another update to them and Hey, they're worse. And then we move on again and, and cover other stuff. And it's just like this slow kind of background role of them getting worse and worse and worse and, and, and further and closer to the breaking point. And I think we're just about there, Matt. I think, mm-hmm. I, I, I think, I think I, I, they're just about, um, at the point where things are going to get really bad if, if they don't improve. 
Yeah, the thing about Tristan specifically is he's a lot like Victoria in that he is very much about appearances. He's very much about keeping, uh, you know, stiff upper lip. I'm yeah. I'm a competent, strong, leaderly man who, yeah, yeah, I got my problems, but you know, I'm I'm tough. I can handle it. Focus on focus on Kenzie. Focus yeah. on Ashley. Um, and in the meantime, we don't know what's going on in his head. Just like if you didn't know, if if we didn't have a window into Victoria's head, we would probably think she was doing a lot better than she is uh, because she's again she's similar. She does the same things. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. And and I think that's probably why Tristan kind of immediately jumped on this opportunity to talk to Victoria alone one on one. That's why he steered the conversation here so soon is because he's like, this is a person that might understand what I'm going through. Um, and I want to I want to maybe get like Victoria says it sounds like a cry for help and he kind of bats that away. But isn't that just in his nature to bat it away? Like, isn't isn't it probably a cry for help? Like what he's doing, what he's doing here is saying, I don't know if I can take it. I'm drowning and I am getting tired of swimming. I've given up on the shore. Like there's this really like depressing imagery of just like lost in the middle of, of the ocean where I'm not even trying for shore. I'm not like not, I'm not even trying to like get the water out of the boat. The the boat's gone and I'm just drowning. Yeah. It's Yeah. It's really interesting how he he dismisses or, or doesn't like he he doesn't find it compelling when Victoria is like, hey, with parahumans, anything is possible. Um, meaning, of course, like, hey, maybe there could be a cure, you know, it's like like Sveta apparently still holds out hope yeah. for some kind yeah. of cure to her problem. And it's like he he doesn't. He's he's like, no, man, like you're talking about the future. I'm talking about today. And and I think there's a personality type where um even when they're asking for help, if they don't ever want to seem weak, even when they're asking for help and what Victoria, you know, and and it's an almost impossible line to walk. It's probably something that like only a therapist could really do, but like Victoria doesn't quite manage to both hold out her hand with an offer of help without making it seem like by like Tristan's not, um, displaying a, a weakness here. Yeah. And that's, yeah. I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into that, but I, I think that's there. Yeah. Well, I, I also like what you were saying about this idea that like, that he mentions that I am worried about right now, not tomorrow. Like it's very easy to say to a starving person, um, well, we'll get you some food tomorrow. Okay. But I'm starving right now. Like a drowning person. Okay. We'll throw you a life vest in a few weeks. It's like, okay, but like I'm drowning right, right now. Like uh, hope is a, is kind of a fickle thing, right? Where it's like, okay, we can, we can try to maintain hope for improvement in the future, but that doesn't solve the pain and the suffering I'm going through in the now. Um, and, and I think it's, it's actually telling, what a person does when they've actually lost hope. Do they, do they resign themselves? Do they give up or even in hopelessness, do you still fight? And that's, that's mm-hmm. an interesting window into what people are. And we're seeing him, we're seeing him nearing that point, entering that point of complete hopelessness. And what's he going to do? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so yeah, like you said, he admits that there are days when he can't do it anymore. This seems like one of those days where he's really down. He, he misses romance He's not in control of his life. Victoria offers to help him out to kind of to kind of dredge up her darkest time so that she can 
connect to him o- over similar experiences, but she she also admits that it would cost her a lot to do so, like like mentally and emotionally. Yeah. And when she says this, he he demurs and tells her, you know, no, 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 focus on the others. I'm I'm fine, uh, which is not true, of course. Yeah. And it's like, I don't want to rip her up too much for doing this because I don't think she does it intentionally. But as you pointed out, when we were talking about this earlier today. She basically is like, um, it's going to cost me a whole bunch of stuff to help you, but I'll do it. Like, which is setting you up to be like, like if someone says that to you, like, you're not going to say, oh, OK, like, it's yeah, just kind I, of like and I don't think that's a conscious thing on her part. I don't think it's like she's consciously trying to push him away him away from making her get to this level i just think it's like it's something that's really tough for her too so she's like subconsciously like like pushing things that direction right i mean she's just being honest yeah yeah um but but it it kind of like assures that this is where the conversation's gonna end yeah well and another thing that's interesting where we i just said there were similar characters and this is this is a way where being similar really backfires because She's different enough from Ashley. She's different enough from Kenzie. She's different enough from Sveta that she doesn't need. She, she can she can relate to them and and help them, and be a, a a comforting presence to them without having to like mentally take herself back to the wretch. Sure. Yeah. Uh, whereas Tristan's problems are not the kind that she can help with in the same way. Um, she she can't really help him. I, I mean, is is if you take this at face value. She can't, she can't even, she, she, she can't help him. She's just like, no, I'm, uh, oh, that's your, that's your problem. Well, I talk to someone else then basically. Yeah. I mean, it's like if you're drowning, you can't be saved by another drowning person. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, mm-hmm. the, I, that's kind of what's happening right now that they're, mm-hmm. they're both drowning in their own problems and like it's really hard to help someone else when you're in that situation. So yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think, I think that that's the fundamental problem here is that she might not have be equipped to help this person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree. I like, it is true that we're using a lot of water imagery for, for Tristan and his mm-hmm. brother just makes water. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know how much we, we want to read that into that, but yeah, I mean that's probably that's probably in there somewhere. Yeah. I, I I agree. Uh, one of the things we see during this whole conversation, though, is that Tristan is creating these tops with his power and spinning them. Um, Victoria says he created what had to be his fourth top, setting it to spinning. It was more balanced than the other, but it still had some wobble. And then at the end of this conversation, at the end of this interaction, we see Tristan grab the latest spinning top he'd fashioned with his power caught it between his fingertips and thumb and crushed it with an ease that suggested his superpower wasn't even needed. So this is the, that fun part where we get to remind you all about how the fact that arc, the arc started with Victoria talking about a stubborn spinning top of the world, uh, that, that the entire world was stubbornly spinning on, and we carry that forward to here. And now Tristan is making tops, setting them to spin, and then at the end of this conversation crushing one so easily in his hands that it didn't even require superpowers. So that's some wonderfully positive imagery for you there. Um, yeah. Yeah. We're, we're taking that, that stubbornly spinning top and we're just crushing it into powder because it's fundamentally unsound yep. and, and fissile. Doesn't even take Great. super strength. Just yep. <laughs> and in fact, 
in fact, to, to just completely read too much into it, <laughs> if 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 it had if he had had to use his super strength, then that would metaphorically mean that the world will be broken by superpowers. But the fact that he doesn't implies that the world will be bro- will be broken by the un by the unpowered. Hey Matt, I really uh-huh. like your possibly too far read into. I'm, I'm glad. Yeah, I like I that. Like that. So next we do a little bit of a skip and we're visiting uh, the two incarcerated members of the team in the prison. And Cryptid is complaining about having to empty his pockets when he's basically a living weapon. So let's talk about Chris for a bit. <laughs> okay. Because I had a revelation while I was reading these three chapters. And, and that revelation was I'm sick of Chris's bullshit. <laughs> and it's it's what used to be funny. And oh, Chris, to me, has just become annoying and and that's that's really what my read was it on when my read on it was until i really dove into these chapters and and looked at chris's interactions with people throughout these three chapters and i think what i discovered is what we're seeing here is not just a chris that's just kind of worn thin on me what we're seeing is a chris whose attacks and and jabs at his teammates and everyone else have just become a little more barbed uh in in the recent events uh, mm-hmm. he's 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 always had these confrontations with Kenzie this joking back and forth with Kenzie but they've taken on a little bit more animosity in, in these chapters in chapter 1 like she's talking about how frustrated she is with the fact that she can't really tinker because um she doesn't have power and he's just like oh make a generator and she's like i can't i need a generator to make a generator and he says try harder and like Chris, that's the exact opposite of the thing you want to tell Kenzie. And he seemed like he generally in the past has seemed aware of this. He seemed aware of when Kenzie's going too far and has been part of the group kind of pulling her back. But here in this moment, he's pushing her forward. And it's it's like I think this is all reflective to me of a Chris who is also increasingly in a really, really bad place. And we've 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 seen like we got hints with with Yamada way back in the day that Chris doesn't have the ability to recognize when his jokes have become less funny to the rest of the group and more barbed and 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 more angry and more hurting to the people around him. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing here. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, what's happening in, in this very scene um, just kind of demonstrates a lack of self-awareness because he's he's making a scene basically at the security gate into a parahuman prison, which is, you know, really dumb. Like, like simply put, it's a dumb thing to do. And we know that Chris is smart. So he's either like really, um, just, just aggro or, or, or distracted and not really paying attention to what's going on. And just kind of, basically he's just kind of lashing out. Yeah. And, and, and he, he does the, and I agree with you that, that previously his like ragging on people was just a personality trait wasn't necessarily lashing out um but there's like a spectrum between that and just being a a a dick probably because he's he's trying to express his frustration and desperation uh with his life yeah and i mean there is a, a surface level um excuse for all this they're wanting to take away 
his medical supplies and and he's painting this picture of himself where my body could just fall apart at any moment. Like if something falls out of me, give me this and then I'll be awake enough to get the rest of it. He's painting this picture of himself. Um, we've never seen this actually happen, though, which is a thing that I've increasingly noticed. Like he has has constructed this image of himself as this person that could fall apart at any second. It could happen at any moment, yeah. but it hasn't in our, in our view ever. Um, and, and maybe he's just taking stuff to keep himself, but, but so that, that's a very surface level understanding of why he's so agitated. But yeah, I mean, it's not just in this moment, it's kind of throughout these chapters that, that like he's, he's, yeah, he's not in a good place. He's in a very, yeah. very bad place, even more so than I think we've seen him in the past. Yeah, I agree. So they're given their instructions and they head inside to meet Rain and Ashley. And I really like the uh, description of the prison details. Yeah, I like this 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 open air prison kind of. There's no walls. There's just describes it as marshland in four directions. I think mm-hmm. this is interesting because this prison is both similar to the birdcage, but very different from the birdcage in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think if we tie things back to the weather setting the tone of the chapter that we did at the beginning of this arc, the prison is described as being sunny. Uh, yes, there's wind, but it's 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 normal wind. It's not portal wind. Um, it kind of goes to sh- show like this place is is far removed from the problems of the rest of the world. Um, not that those problems will not be visiting it very soon, but I, I like how we kind of set the stage with that. Like there's sun shining, there's, there's normal wind. It's an open area. Yes. The people have, um, explosives tied to their, uh, ankles, but you know, it's, there's not portal wind. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like just, it's a very practical description of how you might go about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and kind of different from what you might expect. Yeah. Uh, and so as they go in, it turns out that there are some fallen capes uh, who are captives within, which makes things a bit tense. Yeah, a little bit. And it's just not even not even fallen capes, but Victoria specifically describes them as the, the most troublesome of the fallen capes. The ones that mm-hmm. they actually really like threw the book at um, are the ones that are here. Yeah. And they're obviously not too happy to see these guys. Nope. So Rain shows up first and he updates them on what's going on with him. He kind of, you know. Same old, same old, basically working on a little bit. Of, uh, uh, just bored, I think, is, is mainly what's going yeah. on with him. Um, he says that Aaron visited him uh, and she's spending a lot of time working on Lachlan Hund, the brainwashed kid that we met a couple times. Yeah, sorry, Rain. It was just what this wasn't meant to be, buddy. Yeah, it's really good on Aaron, though. Um, she was kind of going to be forced to be married to this guy and and she's she's now kind of helping him right like like I don't, I don't know if there's an attraction there or what's going on there behind the scenes but she's this is someone who's been brainwashed and she's trying to do good for this person and that got me thinking of like my paranoia or maybe it was victoria's paranoia yeah i'll blame her um her got me to like assume that that like from the moment we first met her this Aaron girl was up to no good but no, she's just it's it's she's much more simple than I think we gave her credit for. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, for, perhaps <laughs> you still <laughs> see you still. Oh, no, no Matt. Oh, Matt. No. No. So won't that that Byron Aaron scene go. No, I have my reasons. I have my reasons, Scott. I want here's what I want. I want us to do a bonus episode. That's you reading the Byron Aaron uh, scene in full. Uh-huh. Um, okay. But but. 
making it like making the readings in what you think is happening under the surface like so it emphasizes the 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 scary like forebodingness that you think that scene represented i I want to hear that i want to hear i'll just read it just read it the way i read it in my head you mean yes exactly yeah yeah Yeah, of course um (laughs) so after they stop this conversation about the frightening aaron uh ashley arrives which with slashley um but they don't get permission for slashley to join them and victoria watching ashley's twin thinks I was reminded of the Siberian, seeing her, what with the long, pale hair across her face, the natural arrogance, and the dangerous look in her eye. I didn't see it in the Ashley that was hugging Lookout right now. Um, And I'm just pulling this out because it's beautiful. It is beautiful, and it is a perfect way of clearly drawing the distinction between these two people. I mean, we know the Siberian, and we know how awful and cruel and inhuman the Siberian was. So making this comparison... For us, the reader is just showing this Ashley is a completely different person. now. OK, not completely different person, but she's a very, very different person than this other version of herself. Yeah, yeah. And it's and we're happy. It's it's, it's funny how it's <laughs> I think we joked about this before, about how, like, what if the former Slaughterhouse Nine member clone was the most stable of the group but like she, she's she's doing she seems to be doing real she's well right doing now all right for now relative yeah. to some of the other members yeah yeah um yeah so so ashley uh likes the new team direction it goes well with her nietzschean philosophy yeah i i really i really like how she just kind of admits that the leadership of the group has always been kind of undefined and weird. Like Victoria would pretend to lead or, or would lead, but then pretend like she wasn't part of the team. And Ashley always kind of assumes she's the leader. Cause that's just who she is. And then Tristan would lead like normally when they were actually interacting with other groups, he would kind of be the de facto leader, but they never actually like had a meeting. Like I, I'm reminded of the undersiders, like talking about Brian's the leader, but maybe we need to decide that we're going to make Taylor the formal leader. And that conversation has just never happened amongst this group. Um, and and Ashley just rightly points that out here. Yeah, uh, I think we've pointed out a few times this group is so averse to um, stepping on people's feelings yeah. that it's much more difficult to have that overt conversation where there is there is a risk of like a feeling of rejection. Yeah. Um, so. You know, this is important. It was important to have this conversation. Yeah. Without like getting into a full uh, like philosophical lecture, uh, what did you think of Ashley's thoughts here? Like she she basically states this philosophy that like they say they're not going to take, take over. And she responds, capes take over. We take power because we have power, just like those with money have a natural ability and desire to earn money. The healthy are inclined to stay healthy. Do you agree with her assessment of of parahumans and kind of the, the writing on the wall she sees in this plan? I mean, I think that's a, a a pretty concise way of of framing certain aspects of human nature. Um, but y- people with money can always lose all their money, and people who are healthy can always become horribly unhealthy. Yeah. So you, you can always break that cycle, either accidentally or on purpose. Uh, it may it may it may not be the default. Yeah, um, I, I think it's an oversimplification. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. but that's kind of, that's kind of Ashley though. So it, it's yeah. definitely in line for her character. Right. I mean, like it's, it's a keen observation, but also it's, there's, there's nuance to it. So, 
Yeah, and then uh, she tells them about her housemates and how they're all pretty screwed up monsters or otherwise not very useful. Yeah, like the scary unicorn lady. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, I think this person is like supposed to be a, a word of God, like character or like a Weaver Dice character or something like my impression from the fandom was that people knew who this was and were excited. Maybe isn't the wrong word, but <laughs> to see them in the story proper. But uh, cool. I didn't know about any of that. So I, I, rec- I now that you mention it, I recognize the, the Monokeros name. Um, which I think pretty sure just means like one horn, but, um, I don't know where that's from. So I'm curious now. I, I, I almost wonder if I want to find out though, or, cause I kind of like keeping my award reading experience relatively pure. Yeah. I mean, I that's, know. that's been my philosophy from the beginning. If it's not in the yeah. story proper, then it's not important enough for the story that I'm reading. Mm-hmm. So yes, it can give yeah. you some enhanced flavor, but if it's important enough, It'll be included in here some way. So yeah, not that it's not it's, that I'm saying it's not OK to get really excited and like to do it like that's fine. Um, it's yeah. just for for our purposes. Yeah. To each their own. Yeah, exactly. So then chapter ends with Ashley telling them that there's one person who stands out to her and would be worth talking to in the prison. Crystal clear. <gasps> Crystal eye boy is in jail. How did that happen? I don't know. I have no idea. And now I'm deeply curious. I mean, I am inclined to think he's a guard more than he's a prisoner because he would be a really good guard in the prison. Um, yeah. So th- that's interesting because my first thought was he was a prisoner. And and then like as I was kind of seeing people's reactions, some people, their first thought was that he was a guard. And the text is um, I, I think the text comes down more on the prisoner interpretation, but it doesn't rule out the way it's written. And I don't think it rules out the idea that he could be a guard. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I certainly have my opinion, but we'll probably learn the truth pretty soon. Yeah. I mean, and we also know that he's like, he was like a, an undercover agent, right? Like he was doing stuff for the wardens. So maybe, oh, yeah. maybe they sent him here as part of his, maybe he's undercover in here. So, mm-hmm. um, he could be so. a prisoner, but, but not a prisoner. I mean, he's in a, he's in a, he has the perfect ability to spy on yeah. like everything that's happening within the prison. So mm-hmm. yeah. Interesting. We'll see. All right. So that's All right. it. Um, yeah, that's it. Uh, a little bit of name game. I kind of already spoiled it. Yeah. You've ruined it. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't, I didn't know. <laughs> so M- Monokeros, uh, one horn. It means, yeah, it, <laughs> it means, means unicorn. unicorn. It's so it's so funny to me because this is a woman who um, was given a, a name that I guess is passed down like she's the fourth unicorn. And then she has this title stripped from her from killing a child. And so she says, OK, fine. My name is Monokeros now, oh which God. just means unicorn. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to go go Greek with it. Yeah. All right. Um so no discussion question this week because the discussion question is you ask us questions because yeah. it's the mailbag, yeah. right? So send those so, questions. Yeah. Hashtag, hashtag mailbag, right? Yeah. In, yeah. in the Reddit thread. Yeah. yeah. Or email. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, well, that's all we got for you this week on We've Got Ward. You guys are all part of this show, so feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. You can reach out to us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com. Send those questions. Or on Twitter at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85. And Matt's is Mordena Unicorn. Yeah. 
And if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find this, all the other podcasts we do, and all of our writing, essays, film, and TV criticism, and more at dailyplanetfilms.com. Um, no new Daily Planet episodes for the rest of the month. We're, uh, we're retooling that show. We're retooling the website. We're rebranding, as we said earlier. So uh, that's on hiatus until August. But uh, we got a bunch of other cool stuff over there. So still go. Yeah, and all the travel that we're that Scott's doing might have something to do with that. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, uh, doesn't help. Um, yeah, and if you like any of our shows and you want to support them, consider donating to our Patreon account, patreoncom slash films. You can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Speaking, uh, supporting us on Patreon uh, gives you tons of great bonuses, like voting in our quarterly fan art contests, which is currently starting up again. Uh, monthly Q and A sessions, access to live streams of our recording sessions, like this very one, and our excellent Discord chat. Special thanks. Uh, speaking of patrons, to New Planeteer Nathaniel at the five dollar level and Captain's Planet. SD and Philip at the $10 level. Thank you so much, everyone. That's that really means a lot to us. Yeah, absolutely. We really, really appreciate it, especially when we're in this weird transition time when we're doing all this rebranding and stuff. It, it means a lot that you guys continue to support us. Thank you. Thank yeah. You. Yeah. And as, as always, make sure you head over to Wildbo's Patreon, patreon.com slash Wildbo and donate to him as well, because this is his world and we're just playing in it. And if you cannot afford to donate right now, that is absolutely OK. You can instead help us out by heading on over to Apple Podcasts and leaving us a rating and a review. This week's review comes from Zion Did Nothing Wrong, who gives us five stars and says, simply put, Scott and Matt know what the hell they're talking about or do a good job of sounding like it. That's probably that one. Their yeah. commentary and analysis goes above and beyond anything else I've seen about these books. Because of them, I've started thinking more critically while reading. Not only have they helped me understand Worm and Ward better, I feel like I've become a better understanding of why I like other books and media in my life. Both guys are articulate with their thoughts, and, and I almost always, and almost always point out things I missed. It's ironic that I messed up the sentence where they said, we were articulate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks to them i have looked forward to wednesdays for a long time oh sorry um it's it's friday it's friday this week so, sorry uh, zion did nothing wrong uh, also we have a new review from z Darian who says uh, manages to capture the feeling of convincing a friend to read a book you love and then talking about it with them as they read that's exactly what we were going for so yeah. thank you so much thank you yeah, these are both great reviews and make me feel like we've been a success at what we were aiming to do. I know. It feels great. Yeah. So that's it for the show this week. Uh, next week, mailbag episode, and then we will be playing catch up uh, to get back uh, to square one, and then everything will be back to normal after that. I just want you to know that if we had only had two chapters, we would have been perfectly on time. It's because we had yeah. a whole third chapter that messed us up. Yeah, well, 
It's, it's fine. It, it was it was good. It was. It was, good. it was very good. Good shit. I'm gonna hit stop now. Me too. <laughs>